Good morning. Praise God for air conditioning. Man, I get some more amens out of that. Have you heard our friend back here? <laughs> it reminds me of something Jesus said. If I tell them to be quiet, the stones will cry out in my praise. So if you refuse to praise his name this morning, the crickets will praise his name. Yeah, he, because he wants to hear God's word. Was. Okay, I need to focus. Okay, let's go. <laughs> the fall of Babylon, the great Revelation chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Now, we are taught uh, by Scripture that God's love resulted in him singing his son to make atonement for the world, to make atonement for our sins. A passage you're very familiar with, John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now, how many disciples, how many followers of Christ do we have in the room? Signify by saying a hearty amen. I don't know if that was hearty enough, but we'll go with it. We are to imitate him. We find in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. In fact, Christians need to be a little Christ. We are to be Jesus. We are to be his hands and his feet. In fact, we are to be changing more and more like into Jesus every day, every week, and every year. That's the process of sanctification. But we also find what at first seems to be a contradictory mandate not to love. For example, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, it tells us, instructs us to come out and be separate. So what exactly is going on here? God loved the world. He sent his son. We are to be like his son, to love other people, to tell them about the gospel. But then we read not to be in the world, not to love the world. What's happening here, we have to be careful of who we associate with, and that can be difficult at times to do so. Many times you may not know what the person's up to or what they're doing. Now, it's okay to have friends. I hope you have friends that are non-believers, that you can talk to, that you can influence, that you can have those one-on-one -on -one discussions with them about God and who Jesus is. However, we must be careful not to get ourselves into compromising situations. In other words, keep your priorities straight. How do you spend your time and money? And I was thinking on this, I thought of a story way back in Genesis. God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot and his family leave, and as they're leaving, his wife is behind him. They're told not to look back, just to take off out of that place. And in Genesis chapter 19, verse 26, it states, But his wife, Lot, from behind him, she was behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. In other words, she's kind of made looking back with a longing, or that's where her heart was. She was mourning the destruction 
of Sodom and Gomorrah. We'll see that happen later in chapter 18 about Babylon. But we find a similar warning about who we associate with and what we do and where our heart is in verse 4 of our text. Look at verse 4. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. Now, like we always do, let's look at this in context, shall we? Look at verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. This is not one of the seven angels that have poured out the seven bowls of wrath. This is a different angel that does tell us having great authority. Perhaps he has a higher rank than the seven angels did. We do not know exactly what that means. And we continue reading in verse 1 that the earth was illumined with his glory. And NIV translates that as splendor, and the Greek word is doxa. Now, although splendor fails to grasp in full weight of doxa, it does explain why the earth is brightened by his appearance. A living human being cannot stand in the full glory of God, you will die. It's just so bright, it's so great, and so brilliant, and so perfect, we cannot stand inside of it. But one day, will be in changed bodies. Don't know exactly what that looks like. And because I am a believer in Christ, and many of you are, we will be able to stand in the presence of God and see him as he truly is. Verse 2, it says, He cried out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Repetition. No, the angel's not stuttering here. He's making a point. It's called a dirge in the ancient world. And a dirge was a somber song or lament expressing, the, expressing mourning or grief. And it's emphasizing here the decisiveness and the extent of the fall of Babylon. From this judgment, there is no redemption. The overthrow is decimating. It's devastating. It's crushing. Now remember, before I move on, Babylon is not talking about a city per se, although it is referencing the city of Rome back in John's day, but this Babylon we're talking about is a way of life, this union of politics and religion we talked about last week. Babylonianism, which is basically man-centered religion. It's all about what man can do and man's achievements. Now, you don't have to answer this. This is kind of a rhetorical question. But do you see that happening in our news today? If we can find the answer, if we can just come together, we can find the answer together. It's, it's amazing what man can do if we just use the full extent of our brain. You see that happening around our world even today. Verse 2 is talks about Babylon as she has become a dwelling place of our home for demons. Now that may seem strange that the subject of all this is the destruction of a city, but the point is that the judgment is so climatic that nothing good or nothing human can remain. It goes on to call it a prison of every unclean spirit and of an unclean and hateful bird. This is a reference to a prison, sometimes a tower that is used for incarceration of evil or unclean spirits or unclean birds. Now, what are unclean birds? These are birds that prey on the flesh, dead flesh of other animals. 
as you drive down 455 or wherever you're going, you usually find these birds in the middle of the road. And you can honk your horn sometimes. They will not move. I suggest that you stop and let them move. They can do some serious damage. But in any case, these are the birds they're talking about. Any birds of prey that feed on carrion or flesh. And the NIV adds the word detestable to emphasize this point. And what's going on is these birds will feed on the carcasses of everybody who dies in the destruction. Can you see this? Just a dirty or nasty, I guess, description of what is going to happen or what is happening to Babylon. Verse 3 tells us, All the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Now, the Greek word translated passion, in NIV, if you have that translation, renders it maddening, is themos. And that is described as an intense, passionate desire over, of an overwhelming, impossible, destructive character. So it can be understood as an intense desire, an overwhelming passion, perhaps. This is why the NIV translates it maddening. It seems to suggest that the adulteries of Babylon constitute a brew that drove the inhabitants to madness, to a sense of desire, an overwhelming passion, almost to the point some people would say they could not help themselves. Not only have nations done that, but it gets more specific in verse 3. The kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. As we saw back in chapter 17, this results in an unholy union between religion and politics. And it goes on in verse 3 to say, The merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth or sensuality. Now, wealth could be literally power, and sensuality is luxury. So these merchants have profited from her position of authority and control. And it's demonstrated in their love for pretentious and vulgar displays of wealth and luxury that are intended to impress or attract attention. Did you just hear what I just said? This love for wealth, the piles of wealth for one reason, to impress people or attract attention. I say again, do you see this happening in our society today? People are looking to impress people. The Greek word translated sensuality, that's New American Standard. New King James renders, renders it abundance of luxury, or the NIV, excessive luxuries. It's speaking of disrespect, arrogance, and depravity. So the, the emphasis here is just not on, the specu- it's not on accumulating the wealth. The emphasis is really about the obsession with it, be excessive with it. It's never enough. I want more, I want more, I want more. Do you see that happening in our society? So you have this place. It's fallen. Birds of prey are eating dark, dead carcasses off people who have died. You have this kings who have allied themselves. And you see this unholy union of religion and politics. Now, now you see this these merchants are getting rich off all this. And I'm going to skip ahead of myself. We will find that these same very people lament 
in the following verse is about her destruction because they're losing their way of life. They're losing their wealth and their position of power and influence. They have a deception with it. And this is where I like to camp out here in verse 4 just for a few moments. John says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins or receive of her plagues. Now, we're not told the origin of the voice. We're not told exactly who it is. Some think perhaps it's the voice of God himself. Now, that phrase, you look back in the text, participate in her sins or share in her sins, employs a word of instruction. It's construction from kionia. Perhaps you've heard that Greek word before. It's usually translated as fellowship. And then as a prefix, a preposition with, which is in the Greek son. So here's the point. God's people are not to have fellowship with Babylon in her iniquities. And remember that the concept of konia is a step beyond friendship and two steps beyond acquaintance. It's focusing on what is held together in common. And this was used in secular Greek to describe the marriage relationship, what they have in common. And God is calling his people out of there, not to associate with that. Don't participate in that. Come out of that. Do not have any fellowship with them. Do not participate in that. They are to avoid all that altogether, and that will lead them to being uh, not the recipients of the plagues intended for Babylon. And remember, excuse me, and uh, look at the word receive. It's taken from a word meaning take or seize. So remain in Babylon is to be overtaken by her plague. So he's, he's warning his people, get out of there, or you're going to receive these plagues that are coming. Don't participate in this. Now, this is where I really had to stop and think for a long time about all this. So... I'm supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. And so, yes, I need to be out there talking to people and engaging and having friends that are not believers, but at the same time, I'm not to engage in their sins or iniquities. Therefore, I will not receive anything that's intended for them. He goes on to verse 5 to say, For her sins have piled up, literally joined together as high as heaven. God has remembered her iniquities or crimes or evil deeds. So as her sins have piled up all this way up to heaven, there is a sense where they're joined together, related to each other. They're glued together. These iniquities is further reason for the people of God to separate themselves from that type of behavior. Now, once again, listen very carefully. This is not speaking of a condescending separation that creates legalism. We cannot walk around being righteous. You've ever heard it, or you're more righteous than me. No, we cannot take that attitude. But our separation must be born of love for holiness and fellowship with God. Now, we can have compassion for those who are caught up in the world. But we are to differentiate ourselves from the world in our lifestyles and our commitments. We must seek that separation. We must be holy. 
we must separate ourselves from the rest of the world. So when someone looks at you, they know there's something different about you. That meant for me, as I became a Christian, down I read all my co-workers, many of them would go out to the bars, adult bars I would call them, out to drink before they went home, and I said to myself, if I'm going to do this, and I'll still be friends with them, I'll still be friendly with them, I'll be courteous and respectful of them, but I will not engage in that behavior, I can't. I have to break myself off from that situation. And for each one of us, God calls us not to be part of that. And let me tell you something about spiritual maturity. There are times where you can stay and fight. That's spiritual maturity. But spiritual maturity is also knowing when to turn, run, and and get out of there. Because we all have our weaknesses and temptations. And let me tell you, Satan knows you better than you know yourself. He'll push every button he can to trip you up. Especially when people know you're a professing Christian, there's nothing more like people like to see than a hero, than someone, a hero that fails. They like to see people who fail. Look at the news. You always hear about, now I'm, I'm not defending the NFL, but please hear me. You always hear about the NFL athletes who get up to start and lots of money, and then something happens and they fall, they mess up, they make a mistake, they sin. You never hear about the other players who go back in their communities and give back to them their charities. They remember where they came from, and they're making a positive influence on a lot of people's lives, especially young people. You never hear about that. It's almost like we're addicted to hearing everything negative. That speaks to me this morning, because I have a tendency to let the negative pull me in. That doesn't mean I need to sweep it underneath the rug. I need to listen to it, but see things in perspective. We must make sure that We separate ourselves, and if we really have compassion for them, if we truly love them, we will tell them about the gospel. I mean, can you imagine knowing somebody for 25, 30 years, and they never heard you tell the gospel? Somehow we've been duped into thinking that's the pastor's job, or that's the deacon's job, or that's the Sunday school teacher's job, or that's the youth minister's job. No. As believers, we are all commissioned. That great commission that we talk about in Matthew. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You already teach them everything that he has taught us. That's for everybody. Now verse 6 tells us to, to pay her back even as she's been paid and give back to her double according to her deeds. And the cup which she has mixed. Now this does not imply injustice from God. Or that judgment is greater than the crime demands. But you can't help be aware of the malignancy of the sins of Babylon and the corresponding world system. Giving Babylon a double portion from her own cup is simply to accord her what she truly deserves. In other words, what she's been given out, she deserves to get back twofold. Look back in verse 7. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. So this torment and mourning or grief are to be inflicted on her at the same level as the glory and luxury with which she favored herself. You know, it reminds me of the preaching back at the turn of the 20th century. This is it. Hey guys, you can eat and be merry and drink and party all you want, but judgment's coming. That's exactly what this text is talking about. 
Oh, yeah, you're going to live it up and have a good, good life, lots of money. Enjoy it now because that's going to be, be your reward because time is coming when all it's going to be taken away and demolished and destroyed. And you'll be standing before God on your own merit. That's not a good place to be. Because if I stand before God on my own merit, I will be guilty of breaking the law of God and I'll be sent to hell for all eternity. But because I put my faith in Christ, his blood covers my sin. He became sin, so I may inherit him, his, uh, be imputed his righteousness upon me. So when God sees me, he sees Jesus' righteousness, not my sin. For she says in verse 8, or boasts in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I'm not a widow, and I will not mourn. I will not know mourning, some translations. What's this talking about? Well, for the backdrop of this, you have to understand about widows back in the Roman Empire days. Very patriarchalism was going on back then, and women didn't have a lot of rights. They almost viewed as property. Ladies, you've come a long way since then here in America. You have rights. You have values. And it took America even a little time to get up... And there's still work to be done, so don't understand me. But I'm just telling you, back in those days. So, the marriage life was talked about and promoted when a woman married her husband. The husband took care of her, made sure her needs were met. But with, if he was to die and she could not remarry, she was a widow. And a widow was a very hard life to live. They're awfully disregarded and neglected by society. Which is the reason why we see in Acts chapter 6, we talk about the first deacons because some of the people were grumbling that the widows and the orphans were being looked, uh, looked over, not taken care of. So they said, won't you find seven men of good repute, full of spirit, that will meet to those needs, and we will turn ourselves to the attention of praying and ready to preach the word. That's my paraphrase. So she's talking about, she says as a queen, not as a widow. To use today's terminology, I admit, I'm my own person. I will never see any mourning. She boasted that she would never know the rigors or sorrows of widowhood, but rather the splendor and the ease of monarchy. However, this misguided confidence is about to be judged. Oftentimes in our lives, we may not say it. I don't have a good chair up here. We'll have to lose this one. I hope I don't fall. I know it doesn't look like it, but pretend this is a throne. Sundays, we put God here. Come to worship God. Submit to God. Read God's word. Say amen. All sorts of things, right? But Monday morning comes. Things at work get kind of hectic. Things are happening. Your patience is being tried. If you're like me, every time you pray for patience, God gives you a situation in which you can exercise patience. So we push God off, and now we want to sit here. We think about it. What can I do? What can be done about this situation? Me, 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 I, I, I. Rather than leaving God on the throne, asking God first, what do you want me to do? Or simply, God help me. Now, in my secular employment, if you ever fly on an airplane and I'm downstairs in the belly loading luggage, you might hear someone scream out time to time, God help me, God give me strength. That's me. I'm just being honest. It's hot. I'm tired. People rug you the wrong way. I sit back and I focus, God help me. And there's nothing wrong with expressing that outward. 
Some people might look at you strangely. Have you ever asked for God's help when you're in Walmart? Have you ever felt like you're being overwhelmed at Walmart? I'm picking on Walmart because it's the biggest retailer in our country. But there are times we need to leave him on the throne. I cannot stress stress that enough that instead of asking what I'm going to do, the first place I must go is the throne of God. God, what do you want me to do? And by the way, God always answers prayer either yes or no or how about this? Look at verse 8. Because she had this confidence for this reason or one day her plagues will come pestilence literally death and mourning or grief and famine and she will be burned up with fire or consumed with fire for the lord god who judges her is strong some trends are that mighty her plagues were going to come when she is living in comfort luxury and security they will come all at the same time, poured out upon her all at once. This is going to happen to Babylon. And we as God's people are being called out of Babylon to separate ourselves. How long, let me just ask you this rhetorical question. We kind of wrap up this morning. How long is God going to lay his wrath? We don't like talking about God's wrath though, do we? How much longer is he going to sit back and watch this thing unfold? He has a plan. He know, This is what gets me. He knew all this was going to happen, but yet he still created the world. Knowing full well what was going to happen. That's his foreknowledge. I found this passage back in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 9. For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath, and for my praise, I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off. It's all in God's good timing. And we, not, we do not know when that time will come. The judgment and wrath of Almighty God is coming, and it's coming soon, dear beloved. For as we look at this passage, and all destruction, and Babylon is fallen, the ways of the world are gone. Hollywood has been destroyed. Everyone put that... In modern terms, you can wrap your mind around this. All that is gone. In light of us knowing what's going to happen, it would behoove us to sit back and let God shine his light into our lives, into our heart, to see how we've been living. What's going on? How are we living out our lives? Not just on Sundays, but Monday mornings and Tuesday and Wednesday. I'd like to share with you a passage, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. And I want to echo, echo this to you this morning. Therefore, we have this knowledge. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And of course, he's quoting Leviticus there. How are you doing? We're not perfect. We're sinners saved by grace, but we must strive 
Our goal must be become more like Christ every day. Dr. Norm Geisler, he was an evangelist, apologist, a theologian, a professor, and author. I think he served at Dallas Theological Seminary for some time. He said this, quote, The unexamined life is not worth living by insisting that the unexamined faith is not worth believing. The unexamined life is not worth living by insisting that the unexamined faith is not worth believing. So we're not free to live a life of empty debauchery and depravity by pointing out the failings of, quote, organized religion, end of quote. That is not an acceptable remedy for the condition of our souls. And I agree with you, Christianity throughout the years and even now is being lived out poorly by many. But instead of judging, condemning, and then discarding the the teachings of Jesus, the Bible, what all the Bible has to say, why not instead step up and live it out correctly as possible to show the, quote, organized religious types, unquote, how it is done? We use that as an escape every, I've used it, you've used it, and let's face it, many people have used it. Well, I don't like organized religion, I'm spiritual. Quit using it as an excuse. Pick up the book, read it for yourselves, and apply the word to your life. Live it out the way it's supposed to be lived out. Will you be perfect? No. Will you fall? Yes. Will it be hard? Of course. Jesus told all of us this, these things in the Gospels. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they hate you, remember they first hated me. Wide is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow and difficult is the path that leads to eternal life. And he said, only a few will find it. You know, when I think about living it out correctly, this is, this is what Jesus did with all the religious types of his day. He was pointing out how they were not doing it correctly. They were missing the point. And we start clumping everything together, calling it organized religion, we're missing the same point. But it has to start with you personally first. It has to be a personal thing with you. Just judgment. We're in the, the hardest part of the book because this is hard stuff to deal with. But this stuff is coming. It's coming. Maybe a day from now, maybe a week from now, a month from now. I do not know. And I've said this before. I'm going to close with this statement. There are two things which you have no control over. The time of your own physical death. Now you can go to the doctors. Yeah, I think you should go to the doctors. You want to live out your life as healthy and long as you can. But you have no idea what's going to happen. Or just a phone call, a car wreck. Name it. A storm, especially today with the lack of rain, a wildfire, just a heartbeat away from eternity. You have no control of it. Yeah, you, you go to the doctor and stuff. You ever notice how they tell doctors they practice medicine? I guess practice makes perfect. The other thing you have no control over, I have no control is the time of his return. Knowing that he made a way possible, knowing that he is going to come back and render judgment, it would behoove all of us to make sure that we are ready. And once we 
find out that we are ready, then we must do everything we possibly can to make sure our relatives, our family, our loved ones, our friends, and our co-workers hear about the same thing that we heard about. I'm here today because of the gift of God. I didn't earn it. I had to do nothing to gain it. Someone told me about the gospel. I believed it, and here I am. And it's not been easy, but it's been God the whole time. It's been God who's been changing me. God who's strengthened Tammy and I's relationship. <laughs> I know that Tammy, Tammy's been known to say, well, when I, when I got married to a pastor, I thought our, our marriage would be perfect, but when Tim became a pastor, that kind of ruined every shot we had. Remember saying something like that? <laughs> <laughs> the point being, Tammy and I have the same struggles that you guys do. We're not superhuman. We have the same temptations, the same struggles, the same obstacles. I'm not asking you to follow me. I'm asking you that you come alongside of me and together let's follow Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we could come together and this wonderful facility that you have allowed us to have and you provided for us. And Father, we thank you for the gift of music that we can sing your praises. Father, we thank you for your word that you have preserved throughout the course of human history that you provided in a language, our language, English, so we can read it, we can pick it up. And Father, you have given us the the gift of your Holy Spirit that helps illuminate the scriptures to us. Help us understand it and apply it. You've given us each other, fellow believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're on this road together called life. We can be here and pick each other up and encourage one another. Father, my prayer is today, if anyone within the sound of my voice or anywhere does not know the gospel, has not given their lives to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I pray that the day that will happen. And I pray for us who have made that commitment that we will lay down everything all our struggles, our pet sins, all these things that cause us to stumble, to confess them and lay them at your feet. Father, our desire is to become more like Christ every day. We thank you for your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness. But lest we forget, we know that you are coming back. Give us the sense of urgency to tell others about you. In Christ's name.